Amen. Well, I want you to open up in your Bibles to the, the Gospel of Mark. We're still working through it, and we've probably slowed down a little bit. <clears throat> you say, we were already going pretty slow. How could you slow down even further? Well, you just wait and see. I'll show you. Um, <clears throat> and, and because we've come to a, a section of Mark that is so rich, so powerful, so important for the life of the church, so critical for your personal discipleship as you follow Jesus, and also at the same time so misunderstood that we are going to pause. I mentioned this a few weeks back, that we are pausing now to unpack it, to to dig deeper. It's almost as if we've been mining, you know, we've been digging, we've got that pickaxe out, and we just struck something, and we got to stop for a moment and kind of excavate the whole thing. That's kind of what we're doing in this, this text. So, so we're at a really important text. We're in there in Mark chapter 9. This morning we're going to read it, and then I'm going to jump all over the place. And so I want you to have your Bibles open. This would be much uh, easier, a much easier sermon for you to follow if you have your own copy of God's Word there on your lap and, and try to track with me um, the, the verses I'm going to be pointing to because there's going to be a foundation that we're going to lay this morning that I do believe when we actually get into the exegesis of this text uh, will be necessary. So we're in Mark 9 and verse 43. Let's start there. We looked at verse 42 last week. Verse 43 to 48. Let me read it. It says this, Jesus speaking to his disciples says, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, Cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Let's stop right there. This passage is a call to every disciple of Jesus, everyone who is following the Lord, to make war with sin. To deal violently and aggressively against the sin that you find in your life. It is a battle cry. It is a blast of the trumpet. And our general King Jesus is calling all of us, his soldiers, to begin waging war, not against the sins of other people, not against the crimes of those people out there, but against our own sin. We are not to make peace with sin. To make peace with sin is to declare war against God. And all of us who then would make peace with sin, allying ourselves 
with the enemy, set ourselves up against God, and this text demonstrates that those who are going to do that, siding with their sin against God, will pay the ultimate price. Hell is brought up several times in this passage, and that is why a few weeks ago we looked more in depth about the doctrine of hell. In other words, this whole passage is about being violent enemies of sin and pursuing a life of holiness, pursuing a life of purity, pursuing lives that represent accurately the nature of God, a righteous life, an upright life. You could say that the theme of this passage is sanctification. And for some of you, that might be a word you're hearing for the first time, this word is not really thrown around anywhere outside of church. So if you're new to church, sanctification might be a new concept. Or it could be something that you've grown up with, you've always heard of, and you have a certain kind of understanding of what sanctification is and what it should look like in the life of a believer. Uh, but that's what this is getting at, is the call that Jesus issues on the lives of his disciples to pursue holiness, to pursue a purity, to pursue sanctification, to be more set free from sin and to be more characterized by righteousness. This is the call of every believer. That's what sanctification is. If I could define it real quick, quickly, it would be something like this. It's sanctification is the work of God in man to free him from sin and to make him more like Jesus Christ. It is the process by which we are made more holy, we become more like Jesus, We eliminate sinful habits and sinful patterns and sinful actions and sinful attitudes, and we then replace them with righteous, holy, God-honoring attitudes and actions. That's sanctification, and that is really the theme of the next few weeks. So we're going to be studying this whole idea of sanctification. This text is going to launch us into this big picture of God's design for our holiness. So next week, we'll be a little more in detail of these particular words and these sentences here that Jesus has spoke. I do think there's another foundation that needs to be laid for us to understand what's Jesus talking about chopping off hands and gouging out eyes. What's he mean by all this? What place does that have in the Christian life? And people have misunderstood that. And if you misunderstand that in the wrong way, you might be maiming yourself. And I don't want any of you to come back to church next week with a hand missing because you misunderstood Jesus' point. To illustrate kind of the direction I want to begin this series, this mini-series on sanctification, I want to tell a story. And I I hope to, as we kind of look at the next few weeks, this idea of sanctification, I want to help you visualize the relevance of what we'll be talking about by giving you stories of people who have understood either wrong things about sanctification or have got it right in what kind of life it enabled them to live. So I'll start with this one, an excerpt of a book I read a number of years ago. That I, it was a story that the author was telling that I thought characterizes kind of the direction I want to start off our sermon this morning. He, he tells the story like this. One afternoon, I was at a local basketball court and I started a pickup game with a guy that I'd seen there a few times. He was quite a character. He cursed like a sailor and had so many tattoos on his body, I wasn't sure what the actual color of his skin was. He boasted continually about his immoral exploits. He wasn't the kind of guy you'd suspect knew his way around the Bible. 
as we played our game, I began to share my story of how I came to Christ. And about three sentences into it, he stopped, grabbed the ball, and said, Dude, are you trying to witness to me? That's awesome. He was surprised, or I was surprised, that he even knew the term witness. I said, uh, well, uh, yes. He said, that's great. No one has tried to witness to me in a long time. But don't worry about me. I went to youth camp when I was 13. And I asked Jesus to come into my heart. And I was legit. I became a super Christian. I went to youth group every week. I did the true love waits commitment thing. I memorized verses. And I went on mission trips. I even led other friends to Jesus. But about two years after that, I discovered that that sin could be pretty fun. And I didn't like the idea of a God telling me what I couldn't do. So I decided to put God on hold for a while. And then after a while, I just quit believing in him altogether. I'm a happy atheist now. And then he, he went on, but there's something awesome. The church I grew up in was Southern Baptist. Now, I don't know what you think about Southern Baptist, but clearly this guy had a certain idea of what a Southern Baptist is. He says, I grew up a Southern Baptist, and they taught eternal security, which means once saved, always saved. By the way, aren't you a Baptist? Awkward silence for me. He went on, that means my salvation at age 13 still holds even if I don't believe in God anymore. Once saved, always saved, right? That means, even if you're right, God does exist and Jesus is the only way, I'm still safe. So either way, it works out great for me. If I'm right, then I haven't wasted my life curbing my lifestyle because of a fairy tale. Okay, you're shot. That's how its story ends. What would you do in a conversation like that? Or what do you think about that story? Is it true that he could just pray some prayer when he's in junior high and live for Jesus for a little bit and then when following Jesus kind of becomes a little inconvenient, you just kind of stop believing in God, do your own thing. But you got this card like the fire insurance card that will prevent you from going to hell at the end of the day. Is that legit? In our series... I want to help you think through these types of questions of what it actually means to live in light of redemption, of who Jesus is, and what it actually means to be saved. And to answer questions like this, who should pursue holiness? Is this really for everyone? Is it optional? Questions like, can you really be a Christian if you don't care about personal holiness? What will happen to me if I don't care about my personal holiness? What's the big deal? Or questions like, how do I become more holy? If I've already been forgiven of my sins, why do I need to work so hard to overcome sin? Isn't it legalistic to work hard to overcome temptation? Should I simply let go and let God? How can I gain victory over the sin that continues to dog my every step? What should I do when I stumble? In other words, we're going to start a topic that is literally about what it means to live a Christian life, what it means to be a follower of Jesus as it relates to how you deal with the sin you find yourself committing. And this is a doctrine that is often so wildly misunderstood 
that it's necessary, I believe, to stop and unpack and explain and allow us an opportunity to kind of marinate in this for a little bit. And if questions are arising in your own heart, to be able to have them answered and to work through this together, this whole idea of sanctification. Is it true that when God redeems us, we need to live a holy life? Or can we, like this guy in the story, just kind of say something, say we believe him, and then carry on living however we want to live? And so this morning, here's what we're going to do. We're going to zoom way out, way out, and we're going to look at the big picture of the redemptive plan of God as it relates to personal holiness. And as the weeks go on, we're going to get narrower and narrower, and we're going to talk about our own lives. Even this morning's sermon will be a little bit like the funnel effect, where we start big, we get a little narrow, and then we'll finish with talking about what God is calling us to do. And we're going to have three points for this morning's message. One is God's plan for the world. Point two is God's purpose in redemption. And point three is God's plan for you. So for the world and in redemption, and then for you. Those are the three points. Number one, let's look at this. God's plan for the world. We're going to summarize it this way. If you're taking notes, God's glory through God's people. God's plan for the world is to bring glory to himself through a people he redeems. That God desires to be worshipped all over the globe and to have the entire earth filled with the glory of God. Some of you have read Genesis and in the very first chapter you encounter Adam and Eve and sometimes we get caught up into uh, the, the forbidden fruit and the first sin that we forget what happened prior to the fall. And what happened prior to the fall was that God created these two people in his image. Adam and Eve were image bearers. You say, what does it mean to be an image bearer? An image bearer is someone that God has created. We are all, all humanity is made in God's image. And these image bearers reflect something of the reality of who God is to the world they're in. So God is holy. He created men and women holy. In the garden, there was a perfection that they enjoyed that reflected God's perfection. They were to spread out over the world and to rule and subdue the creation. And in their ruling and subduing the creation, what were they doing? They were reflecting God's rule and God's authority over the creation they gave them. In other words, the image bearers that God made and put on the earth were meant to be revealers, reflectors of the glory of God himself. God wanted to bring glory to himself, but he wanted to do it through a people that he created. Now, how long did Adam and Eve last without bringing sin into the world? Not long. So in Genesis chapter 3, they fall into sin and plunge the whole human race into rebellion. And ever since then, death has reigned and sin has been passed on from generation to generation. And yet, has God's plan changed? No. God still has a plan to bring glory for himself through a people. But now these people are not already perfect. They must be redeemed. And so if you compare the very beginning of Genesis with the very end of Revelation, what do you have at the end of Revelation? You have a gathering of the redeemed people bringing glory to God. This has always been God's plan. 
let this sink in, that the world is not about you. It's not about Grace Rancho. The world is about God and His glory. And He is working out this amazing plan in His creation through redemption to bring His glory on display, to put it out there. And He intends to do it not just generically through the creation, but specifically through a people who are His, who reflect His character. So we ought to see a little bit of what God is like in the people of God. Okay? Now, this is what uh, you, you see when you read through uh, the Bible from beginning to end. You could even start reading through the Psalms, and you realize that, that God's plan is for global glory. Global glory. That the nations are to come to recognize God and who He is through the people of God. If you read through the Psalms, it'll come up again and again. I, I would uh, encourage you to do this. It'll, it'll refresh your soul. Go through the Psalms next time you read them and mark every time that the psalmist is longing for the glory of God to be put on display to the nations, the peoples, that all would know His glory. You get Psalm 33, verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere Him. You get Psalm 47.1, clap your hands all you nations, shout to God with cries of joy. And then Psalm 63.7, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. So God's plan for the world is that all the world is covered in the praises of His name. Covered with people who reflect His glory, who demonstrate His character, who reveal the people, reveal who He is to the watching world. That's the plan for the world. This happened with Israel in in Exodus 19, uh, verses 4 to 6. God has just redeemed Israel out of Egypt, and God speaks to them. He's about to give His law. And he says in chapter 19, verses 4 to 6, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Remember, he saved them out of Egypt with all the signs and wonders and the plagues and all that. He says, how I bore you on eagles' wings, and I brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the nations. Watch this. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. And a holy nation. Why did God redeem Israel? To make them His treasured possession. So that they would be a kingdom of priests. What is a priest? Priest functions like a mediator between God and man. A priest is representing God to humanity. In other words, get this. All of Israel, the nation of Israel, was to be a holy nation that reflected the character of God to all the watching nations. And so you were to watch Israel... And see something about what God was like. That's why Israel had to be what? Holy. Because if Israel was to accurately reflect God, they had to be a holy people. So God had chosen this people. And guess what happens with Israel? What do they do? Just like Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were meant to display the glory of God, and they failed. And Israel was called to be a holy people and display the holiness of God to the watching world, to all the nations. And guess how they did? They failed. And so, uh, God set aside Israel for a time. And now, God is working through the church. 
Nothing has changed, actually, between Old and New Testament. Now, God's desire, God's plan, is to demonstrate His glory through the assembly of the redeemed, His church. He wants the church to be the demonstration to the nations that He is glorious and holy and should be cherished and admired and trusted. The church is proclaiming this message through their words as they preach the gospel and through their lives as they live holy lives, that God is glorious. This, by the way, church, if you noticed Kent praying this morning, he prayed for the nation of Bermuda. And if you've been paying attention, we've been working through every nation on the planet. We're only in letter B. We've been doing this for a number of months now. But we're going to work through all of the nations of the world. You say, why would we do that? It's because we want to cultivate in our own hearts a heart for the nations. Why? Because God has a heart for the nations. God desires that His glory be known from every nation and tribe and language and tongue and that the church of the living God is to be the the mechanism by which that glory is seen by the nations. But go to to Matthew chapter 5. I want to show you this. In the Sermon on the Mount, in the very beginning, Jesus in the most popular sermon that has ever been preached, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaking to the crowds. And verse 2, he opened his mouth and he taught them. And he begins uh, going through these Beatitudes. And many of you memorized the Beatitudes this last year. If you were in the men's equipping group, you, you know these things. You've, you've thought about them. And he begins describing the character of those who reflect God's glory, those who will be in the kingdom of God. He says in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so, so those people who reflect God are, are poor in spirit, they're spiritually humble. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Verse 6, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. He goes down the list, he uh, describes the the marks of the people who are born again, who are his people, who will make it in the kingdom. Verse 7, they're merciful. Verse 8, they're pure in heart. Verse 9, they're peacemakers. Verse 10 and 11 takes a different turn. They're, they're persecuted. They're reviled. And then look at verse 13. Now many of you, if you've been raised in church, you, you know this verse. You are the salt of the earth. And then in verse 14, you are the light of the world. And I think so often we've We've read those, and we've just assumed the, the generic you, just you. you know, whoever's reading this verse, you know, you're the light of the world. But who's he talking about? Who's the you in verse 13 and 14? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. you know who he's talking about? He's talking about the people who inhabit the characteristics of the Beatitudes. The, the ones who are poor in spirit are the salt of the earth, the ones who are mourning over their sin and over the brokenness of the world, they're the light of the world, the ones who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those are the ones who are revealing the glory of God to the world, who are the light of the world. And then look down here, which is the clincher in verse 16. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Your light is to shine, and what happens when your light shines when you do your good works? Who gets the glory? It doesn't say, let your good works be done before others so that they may see your good works and give you glory. It says, you do the good works and God gets the glory. 
And that's the way God set up this universe, is that when we are living for Him, that we are uh, designed to be reflectors of who He is. So when we live lives that are holy and righteous and pure and good, we are saying something about who God is. And so what is the church? The church is an assembly of the redeemed people set aside by God, called by God to live a holy life, to shine in the world so that people will know who God is. This is why we take ecclesiology very seriously. What's ecclesiology? It's the doctrine of the church. Because if you have a misshaped church, you could be finding yourself saying something wrong about who God is. An impure church, what does that say about God? A church that doesn't value holiness, how does that blaspheme God? Who does care about holiness? In other words, a church that does not live in accordance to the character of God, what what kind of people are we? In fact, it's all throughout the Bible that there are times that the very people who claim to know God become the people who bring blasphemy upon His name. The people who claim to know Him and live lives of hypocrisy are the ones that God rejects. So you do the good, good works. God gets the glory. We are conformed into His image. Now turn over to Ephesians chapter 3. I told you, we're doing sword drills this morning. We're going to be all over the, the, the Bible. Go to, go to Ephesians chapter 3. Because Paul ups the ante a little bit about what we're doing here in terms of God's great plan of redemption. Watch this. In chapter 3, verse 7, Paul is describing that he's been made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. That's, that's verse 7. Which was given to me by the working of his power. So God called Paul, Paul to be a minister of the gospel, to reveal the gospel to the Gentiles, that is to the nations. Verse 8, to me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Now watch this, one of my favorite passages in the New Testament, verse 10. So that, why why did God choose Paul and give him grace and redeem him and then send him out to be preaching the gospel to those Jews and Gentiles? Why? Watch this. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What is the church? Do you see what it is here? See, God wants to demonstrate his manifold wisdom. He wants to demonstrate His multifaceted glory to all the universe. And what is He going to use? The church. The assembly of the redeemed. Look at what it says there. It says, so that uh, the, the, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the, what does it say there? Rulers and authorities in the heavenly places? Who's that? You know who that is? That's the angelic realm. That's angels and demons. That's archangels and devils. That's, that's referring to the unseen spiritual realm, rules and authorities, and you get that by comparing it with what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6. The, the angels and demons are sometimes referred to as rulers and authorities in heavenly places. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, listen, God is going to reveal His glory. He has created all things to demonstrate His manifold wisdom. So that all the world will see 
the wonder of his character, but listen, not merely the world will see his glory, the unseen angels and demons will recognize his manifold wisdom when they look at what he's doing in the church. That we are something angels peer into. And they stand in awe of the redemption that God has given us. And demons are baffled at that such sinners like us could be redeemed and forgiven and reconciled to God. And God at the end of time will hold up His bride, the church, as a trophy. And all will be able to say, God is glorious because of what He has done. That is God's plan for the universe. Never never judge the church by just human perspective. Because God is doing something far bigger than you and I can see. I remember um, listening to a sermon that John Piper preached in 1981. I wasn't alive in 1981, so I didn't listen to it live. But I listened to it through the, the online ministry, and I remember the opening paragraph struck me And I believe God used that to change me in a significant way to heighten my understanding of the church. And I want to read the paragraph that he opened up his sermon with. He said this. He says, The church of Jesus Christ is the most important institution in the world. The assembly of the redeemed, the company of the saints, the children of God are more significant in world history than any other group organization, or nation. The United States of America compares to the church of Jesus Christ like a speck of dust compares to the sun. The drama of international relations compares to the mission of the church like a kindergarten riddle compares to Hamlet or King Lear. All the pomp of May Day in Red Square and the pageantry of New Year's in Pasadena fade into a formless gray against the splendor of the bride of Christ. Take heed how you judge. Things are not what they seem. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass, and the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord and all His family abide forever. The media and all the powers and authorities and rulers and stars that they present are a mirage. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The gates of Hades, the powers of death, will prevail against every institution but one, the church. And here we are, church, gathered to sing the praises of a holy God. And do you realize that what we are doing as we assemble, as we live lives together as a church, is we are declaring who God is And then with our lives, catch this, with our lives, we are showing the world what He's like. Feel the weight of that. With our words, we are describing who He is. And then with our lives, we are showing the world, albeit very broken images, but true, what God is like. There are some people who will never know what holiness is, until they see the life of a holy believer following the Lord. They will never know what love is until they experience the love of a true church member loving them and pouring out generosity and sacrificial giving. They won't understand these things until they see it in the lives of the redeemed people. So there's our first point. The plan of God 
is that God is glorified among God's people. God's glory through God's people. Now, number two, the purpose of redemption is this, God's character in God's people. We're going to see that these overlap a little bit. God's character in God's people. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. You were just in Ephesians chapter 3. Now look over at Ephesians chapter 1. And I wish I could go through all of chapter 1 in detail. It's a glorious chapter, but I want to highlight just a few verses and draw out an implication here. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. We're going to see in Ephesians 1 kind of a big picture overview of God's plan of salvation, what he's doing. In chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. All of it. Just heaven just pouring down upon us. Every spiritual blessing to the church. Verse 4, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Here you have the work of the Father choosing the church in eternity past to be the recipients of this spiritual blessing. See that? Now skip down to verse 7. In Him, that's verse 7, that's in Christ. In Christ, we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to the purpose which He set forth in Christ. Stop there. So we have God the Father choosing in eternity past those whom He will save. And then we have the Son being the Redeemer of those whom God has chosen. He redeems us through His blood and He forgives all their sins. And then go down to verse 13. In Him, that's again in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. There's the third member of the Trinity there. You see that? Father chooses in eternity past. Son redeems and forgives sin. Spirit seals and puts that stamp of security so that all of those who are in Christ are secure and saved forever. You might ask yourself, why does God do this? What's he doing here? This glorious, sovereign act of grace to redeem a people for himself. Look at verse 4 again. Go back. See it in the text. There's many good answers to the question, why has God saved me? But here's one of them that many of us have not thought much about. Look at verse 4. Even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, watch this, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Church, you have been redeemed for holiness. You have been purchased out of the slave market of sin and set free in the shackles of sin that have been upon your ankles, the, the, the binding around your arms and your wrists, the, the cage that you have lived in, the cage of sin has been wide open by the grace of God, and God has now redeemed you to holiness. He has called you now to live a life of righteousness that what? Reflects His righteousness. You have called, you've been called to holiness that does what? Reflects His holiness. You could think of yourself, church, like an ambassador sent by a good king. And imagine there's a king who's generous, beneficent, kind. 
He's, he's just the epitome of, of goodness. And he sends you, let's say, to go be a representation of him to a foreign country. And you go and imagine you, the ambassador, are rude, stingy, harsh, suspicious, questioning. What's that other country going to think about your king that you're supposed to be representing? You see, what happens in redemption is that God actually works in us to make us like His Son. It is not merely that He offers a gift of salvation and says, I hope you choose it, and if you pray some prayer at some point, you can get into heaven. You see, salvation is something bigger and more glorious than that. It is the sovereign work of a father choosing, the work of the son redeeming, and then the work of the spirit indwelling. And all of this amounts to a total and complete transformation of the person into the likeness of Christ. Not perfectly, but the image of Christ is being remade in the person who has been redeemed. In fact, if you were to look now at Ephesians chapter 2, watch this. Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, that's verse 1, in which you walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We couldn't get out of the situation. And you go to a, a cemetery and start talking to the, the gravestones there. See if anyone's going to respond to you. See if anyone, if you tell them to get up out of the grave, is anybody going to do that? Dead people don't respond. Dead people are dead. And spiritually speaking, we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. We could not respond to God. We could not come to God. We could not choose God. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And what happens? Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy like an overflowing fountain, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He has loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, He, what did He do? He made us alive with Christ. By this sovereign grace, He spoke to us life, and then we were alive. By grace you have been saved, verse 6. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward, toward us in Christ Jesus. Age after age after age, millennia after millennia, there is God forever showering upon us the riches of His kindness. What have we done to deserve any of this? The answer is we have done nothing. We were dead. He made us alive. He gave us His Spirit. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. All grace. All grace. God gave you the faith even to believe. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's all free. Gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. Watch this. And here's where we're getting at. For we are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. For. You see that? Good works. Which God prepared beforehand. And we should walk in them. You have been redeemed. You have been remade. You have been renewed. You have been transformed. You have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God according to the Gospel to give a new life. You are alive in Christ. Why? So that you would walk in the good works 
that God has prepared beforehand before you even existed. God has called you to do that. God has called you to be a part of that. Why? Again, let's go back. So that you would reflect something true about the glory of the God who saved you. This is the purpose of redemption. Your call to salvation is a call to holiness. Your call to redemption is a transformation, a gift of new life, so that you can actually be holy. 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9. It says God saved us and called us to a holy calling. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7. God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. You are redeemed to holiness. You are called by God to a holy calling. God in His omnipotent, sovereign grace awakes you to faith, calls you to Himself, gives you the Spirit, and then enlists you in this life of living a holy life so that you would reflect the truth of the character, listen, of His own holiness. Your Christian life is not merely about you. The things that you can do or called to do, it's your life for God demonstrating who He is. You bear His stamp wherever you go. Resemble Him in ways that you don't quite understand. As image bearers, we are meant to live for His glory, but we cannot do that in ourselves unless we are redeemed. I just want to say, if you are not yet saved, if you're dead in your trespasses and sins, if you have not been forgiven, if you have not been renewed by the Holy Spirit of God, regenerated from the inside out, I want to call you to wake up and put your faith in Jesus Christ. To call upon Him, beg for mercy, to bank upon Him and Him alone who can give you the new life you need, to grant you the faith you lack, to give you a new heart so that you can follow Him in obedience. I want to show you another text. Just go to Ezekiel chapter 36 because this just shows it in more graphic of what God is doing in your redemption. See, God's purpose of redemption is to work His character in your life. I hope you're getting that main point. This is still point number two. If you're wondering if we've moved on to three. No, we haven't. Uh, The point that I'm making here is that God is working out His character in your life. He's called you to holy living, and He has freed you to become holy. Now look at chapter 36, verse 25. This is a description uh, of the new covenant. When God saves His people, what does He do? Watch this. Verse 25. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. What He's saying is, I'm going to be the one who cleanses you. And from your, all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone. This is the kind of surgery that God does. A spiritual surgery where He goes right into your heart. He sees that heart of stone. He pulls it out. And then He says, I will remove that heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh pulsating with life. And I will put my spirit within you. Not only am I going to give you a new heart that longs for holiness, desires holiness, but I myself in the Holy Spirit will come and dwell within you. Now get this. And I will cause you. You see that word there? 
Underline that. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Okay. Let's go back and think about that guy at the beginning of the story. Can it be rightly said that this has happened to him? Can it be said that this guy has actually been redeemed? If, if this guy is intent on living in rebellion against God and following his sin as an atheist, can it be said of him that he has a new heart, that the heart of stone's gone, that the heart of flesh is there, that the Spirit dwells within him, and the Spirit is causing him to walk in holiness? Can that be said of him? No, it can't. And can it be said of someone who claims to be a Christian and yet has no desire to live a holy life, can it be said of them that they are in fact redeemed? No. And could it be true that there are scores of people, hundreds if not thousands, who have at some point said the sinner's prayer, raised their hand at a conference, walked an aisle at some point, or asked Jesus into their heart, and they have never had this happen to them. They have never been redeemed. They have never been regenerated. They have never been given a new heart. And the Spirit is not indwelling in them, causing them to live in accordance to God's rule. Is it possible there are people deceived into thinking they're saved when none of this has happened? Absolutely. And churches are filled with them. And the church becomes crippled in its ability to reflect the glory of the holy God to the world if it is crawling with people who think they're saved and yet have never been redeemed. That is why this idea of God's redemption is for holiness is so critical to the health of the church. I remember being in the church many years ago where a guy had been in a teaching ministry of the church. He'd even been an elder of that church. And because of difficulty in a marriage, he decided to leave his wife and no grounds for divorce at all. He began living with an, another woman and was just living a life of sin. I remember I was on staff at that church. I went to the pastor and said, what, what are we doing about this? This guy was an elder. This guy was a member. Do we talk to him? Do we say anything about this? And on top of it, he was still calling himself a Christian? Are we going to do anything about this? And the response was so disheartening, it was basically, ah, no, no, we, you know, he, he's still calling himself a Christian, and he found this other church that's not really asking any questions, so he's going there. And, you know, that's kind of in the past now. We're not really going to do anything. And I just was grieved. Because he was still pretty convinced that God had saved him. But in what sense can you say that you have been redeemed by a holy God while you openly and brazenly do the things that he hates? How can you say that the Spirit of the holy God has taken up residence in you and you just go on sinning without any sense of remorse and without any desire to repent? So the purpose of redemption is you are free now to be holy and because of the work of the Holy Spirit, you are regenerated so that you can be holy. You can be holy. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. You can be holy. Now, two responses. We're not promoting salvation by works. No way. No way. It's by faith alone. 
apart from any works of the law, trusting in the finished work of Christ, what we are saying that is true faith works. True redemption transforms. Grace is not merely pardon, it's power to change. Grace not merely forgives, it transforms. And we're also not promoting any sort of perfectionism where once you're redeemed, you never struggle with sin anymore, you're totally good, uh, you, you, you just kind of go on this good, perfect Christian life until you get to heaven. No, we're saying, no, there is a struggle that you will have till the day you die, but that you, once redeemed, will begin this long, this lifelong journey in pursuit of holiness. You are justified by faith alone, but that faith that justifies is never alone. It bears fruit every time. This is why the Heidelberg Catechism, written in 1563, says, Can those be saved who do not turn to God from their ungrateful and impenitent ways? Can you be saved if you don't turn away from those things? And the answer to the question is, by no means. Scripture tells us that no unchaste person, no idolater, no adulterer, no thief, no covetous person, no drunkard, slandered, robber, or the like is going to inherit the kingdom of God. And so Spurgeon says this, if the professed convert is distinctly and deliberately, if he declares that he knows the Lord's will but does not mean to attend it, you are not to pamper his presumptions but it is your duty to assure him that he is not saved. And I will say that to all this morning. In light of what Jesus said about chopping off hands and gouging out eyes and chopping off your foot, if it causes you to sin, if you are not concerned about personal holiness, if you do not have any desire to wage war against the flesh, the sin that creeps up and indwells, if you have zero desire to turn from that stuff, I don't want to pamper your presumptions. I want to tell you the truth. And the truth is, you're not redeemed. God is not so impotent to save someone from their penalty of sin, but be unable to save them from the power and the hold of sin. He does. He sets us free. And the evidence of the power of the gospel is not only sins forgiven, it's sins forsaken. In transformation. And so Jesus calls us to a life of holiness because He has enabled us to live lives of holiness. So here's part three, and here's where we end. The plan for you. The plan for you. So the plan for the world, God's glory. The plan of redemption, God's character work in us. The plan for you, become what God says you are. And this is specifically to the church, to the believers here. Become what God says you are. God says that you're holy. You now become holy as He is holy. God says that you have been declared righteous. That's justification. Now become righteous. That's sanctification. God has set you free. Now act free. To pursue the joy of obedience. God gave His Son to redeem us 
from not only the penalty of sin, but the power of sin to give us new life so we can live in obedience to God. He has forgiven us. He has redeemed us. And now He has called us to live a holy life. Why? So that God would receive glory as we reflect who He is to the world. So the plan for you, church, the plan for us, church, is to now get to work becoming what God has said we already are. That's going to make more sense in the coming weeks. But let me, as kind of a teaser, ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. And we'll wrap up with this. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. Paul is writing, this is a, one of my favorite passages to go to when thinking about sanctification and growth and my responsibility in it. He writes, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Okay? Whatever God has made you to be, whatever personality quirks you have, God made you that way on purpose by his grace. I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Then he goes on to say, on the contrary, watch this. I worked harder than any of them. He's talking about the other apostles. I worked harder than any of them. The reason why I am, it's the grace of God, but I worked harder than all those other apostles. But then look what he goes on to say next. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Okay, Paul, what is it? Make up your mind. What is it, Paul? Is it all the grace of God that made you that, the way you are, this powerful, fruitful apostle that's, that's living a holy life and being used by God to do so many good things in the church? Is it just sheer grace? Or did you work harder than everybody else? And Paul's answer is, yes. It is that. That. Both of those things. It is all grace. So Paul takes no credit. And yet he says, and I worked harder than any of them. And I want to put that on you and let you sit in that this week is to ask yourself this question. I have been redeemed, if I have been redeemed by God for the purpose of demonstrating His glory, and I've been given a new heart, and I've been redeemed to holiness, I've been called holy, I've been made holy, I've been given life, then ask yourself this question, how hard am I working to be what God has said I am? How hard am I willing to work? And let me go back to what Jesus said would you be willing to chop off a hand, gouge out an eye, chop off a foot, in order that you might more accurately reflect the character of God in your life? And I'll give you a hint. You don't have to literally chop off any limbs. Don't do that. He's talking about being aggressive and violent against all known sin. So are you doing that? Or are you nibbling the crumbs on the table of sin thinking that you don't really need to take it seriously? Are you pursuing holiness with everything you've got? Because that is the purpose of your existence on planet Earth is to reflect the holiness of the God who redeemed you. Let's pray.
Oh, Lord, make us a holy church. I pray even now that if there are secret sins, they would be exposed by your graciousness, revealed so that they could be forgiven, confessed, and moved from. I pray if there are any who are thinking that they're Christian and yet do not have any concern of, for holiness, no interest in killing sin, I pray that you would convict them that they are deceived and that they would fall upon their knees in repentance, beg for mercy, and that you would grant them the new birth, make them alive, and give them that hunger and thirst for righteousness. And Lord, for those of us who have been pursuing holiness, I pray that you would give us victory, that you'd keep us humble, and then also, Lord, that you'd help us to come alongside those others who are trying also to pursue holiness, and you'd give us wisdom to help them, that we would be brothers and sisters to one another, a family that grows together, not perfect, but stumbling forward together, fighting the sin that is indwelling in our hearts. And Lord, may Grace Rancho be a beacon of light to the world that when they see our good works, they give you glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.